Built Not Born, episode 32. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Melissa Sproul. Melissa Sproul is a thought leader in the world of interior design. She's a wife, she's a mother of two, she's an artist, and a mental health advocate. On today's podcast, Melissa and I discuss her journey of battling depression since the age of 11 that ultimately led her to the use of psychedelics, how Melissa being diagnosed as gifted as a young child helped fuel her depression. Melissa describes how she excelled academically, but at one point found herself not wanting to succeed because when she did, she actually felt more isolated from her peers. And she walks us through during a family vacation at 11 years old, how her father literally broke up with her by choosing his new wife and family over her, and how ultimately postpartum depression after the birth of her second child led her to the breaking point, how it made her rethink the rest of her life. Melissa tells us how psychedelics helped get her past her depression and back to living her best life. I'd like to thank Melissa for joining us Melissa is just a fantastic guest. She is smart. She is articulate. She is a killer interior design. I'll link her bio in the show notes. She is so talented. She's a wife. She's a mother of two. But the mental health advocate side is something I really want to discuss with her. Her journey through traditional medicine and the use of psychedelics. It's just an honest and real conversation of how people struggle and different ways they can find to get their life back. I'd like to thank Melissa for, for sharing her story. I hope you guys enjoy. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Melissa Sproul, interior designer, wife, mom, artist, and mental health advocate. And remember, life is built, not born. Melissa Sproul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I am the director of design at a billion-dollar healthcare supply and services organization. Uh, My team designs around 1,000 healthcare offices nationwide each year, and I've really been fortunate to develop into kind of an industry thought leader. I travel the country. I lecture about design as it relates to health, safety, provider, and patient outcomes. I've been a contributing author in some trade publications, put out some white papers, and even have a series of online masterclasses about healthcare design. I want to get into that. And I also want to get into your story on mental health, psychedelics, depression, and the different new modern ways to treat that. But before we do that, I want to start all the way back from the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania called Wyoming. It is all of about three square miles. And I'm sure we'll unpack this a little bit as we go, but I grew up in by those standards, the mid 80s, what would be considered a non-traditional family. I say those standards because of course now today we we know and accept that families come in all different shapes and sizes. But at the time it felt weird that I was the child of essentially a teenage single mother. And I lived in a house with her and her two sisters who were very much like my own sisters and my grandparents. So I had this interesting multi-generational upbringing with my teenage 80s new waiver mother and my baby boomer grandparents. And it made for a very interesting and colorful childhood. I find 10 years old, a very formative time in people's lives. What was it like around the dinner table when you were 10 years old? Who was there? What was going on? Could you describe that scene? Yeah. So those players around the dinner table were those who I described as my team of caregivers growing up in a non-traditional family. So my mom, her two sisters, and my grandparents. And I always felt at home 
at a table of adults, having adult conversation. Part of this stems from, I was a funny, odd, high achiever as a kid. We'll get into that as well. But I always felt most comfortable in the presence of adults versus my peers. And for me, the perfect format for that was around the dinner table with the people I loved. So it was full of conversations and they treated me just like one of them versus a a child. And I know that could sound a little bit funny. It's not that I wasn't able to enjoy so many of the wonderful elastic benefits of being a kid, but I was very cerebral and I enjoyed the adult conversation stimulation. Looking back at that time, who was your biggest influence when you were a kid? Ooh, that's a great question. I would have to say that it was my mother. She didn't have it easy. She was pregnant at 19, which was of course very taboo. I ended up going to a Catholic school because she saw it as the best fit for me as at the time, which was also very taboo. There I was born in sin to a single teenager. And she was just relentless in making sure that I felt loved and special. My mom is a very creative thinker. She was an artist. I am now an artist. And that gave her the ability to always reframe problems in really interesting, different ways. And that's something that I've been able to carry with me into adulthood, both in the way I parent my own children, but also in the way that I approach my job as a creative leader every day. A good example of that would be, I struggled with math. I I was a high achiever, but math was just tricky to me. And I was very young and she showed me how to divide using a box of crayons. She dumped them out on the floor and showed me how they were able to divide into different and I could see them visually and it made it click in my mind. And that has always been my mother, the person to reframe any problem in a way that I can comprehend. That's really cool. We all have friends that are really good in math and they're very linear thinkers, but then you have the artists, the free thinker that are horrendous at math. Like they can't make change, but they hang up with these amazing creative concepts, but they can't add 12 plus three together. They need a calculator. How's the brain work that way? It's interesting that you asked that question because I think if I had to take a step back and think about my own identity, I think that my identity falls into two sort of related but conflicted buckets. I'm an artist and I'm a smart kid. So I'm going to go through each one of those separately and talk about how they relate. I'm an artist because I have had this primal desire to communicate with the world around me in a visual way since I was very young. And the ability to distill what I see down to these very essential relationships between form and color. I'm fundamentally a painter, but I'm always growing by seeking these new artistic experiences, whether it's ceramics or textiles or building miniature rooms out of cigar boxes, you name it. And then the second bucket of my identity is I'm a smart kid. I was a very high achiever when I was young, despite not being great at math. I was diagnosed gifted in second grade where it was identified that my mind just works differently from the vast majority of my peers. And and giftedness is something that seems really great on paper. Oh, how lucky you're really smart. But it's really something that I've discovered is both a blessing and a curse. With giftedness, you're characterized by things like rapid comprehension, or you might understand the basics of a situation around you very quickly, very intuitively. You have a tendency towards things that are very complex. You're really high expectations. I've always felt this weird push-pull in terms of my identity, both wanting to be that artist and that free thinker and wanting to be a high achiever at the same time. And giftedness helps explain that in that even though I always did academically, I did well because I don't follow a linear thought process. I'm a bit of a divergent thinker, which is where my academic world and my artistic life have met in the middle. It certainly is a blessing and a curse. It comes with challenges for sure. So you're in second grade, say diagnosed or just labeled gifted. Mm-hmm. To, to me, that sounds heavy. You said, Joe, we decided you're gifted. That would not be good for me. I, I wouldn't know what to do with that. To me, that comes with expectations. That mm-hmm. comes with, I have to be a little different. I got to level up my game more than I'm doing now. Let's go to the curse side. Here's one thing I gifted would, would get in my head. The way you said your brain works. When I hear that, you might struggle relating to others around your age. It might be really hard for if you're a bunch of 13 year olds goofing off in a room you know, mm-hmm. at a party that you don't want to do what they're doing or it bores you. Am I, am I on the right track there? Like yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, we'll talk about it, how it related to my life as a child, but I'll tell you for, for a long time, I thought that giftedness was just kind of this 
passing classification from my school age years. Um, but I learned that giftedness in adulthood is very real. And it has caused some challenges for me, even as an adult, that are true to these examples from when I was a child. But I did have a, a very difficult time relating to others. And not because I wasn't friendly. I was even class president for two years when I was in high school. But I was so cerebral, so in my own head. And I, I, I joke now that I, I feel in HD. And my peers didn't understand. I was always experiencing something deeper or seeking something deeper than those who were around me. And it created really this profound loneliness, which I think was one of the things that ended up fueling my depression, which I, I dealt with as a teen, but it really came to a head in, in adulthood, particularly after I had children. And so it's funny because I did great academically, but what was behind the curtain was a very lonely kid who struggled and, and who felt like they didn't fit in. And it almost put this edge of, I found myself not wanting to succeed. Because the more I would succeed, the more different and the more isolated I felt from those around me. A curse of this, say, giftedness. The, the more you succeeded, the more lonelier you felt. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. It was very alienating. It was even something that kind of followed me through college. Oh, of course she won the award. Of course she was selected. And I found that I had a really difficult time, an impossible time, celebrating any of those things as successes because it gave my peers just one more differentiating thing. And let's face it, we all have that primal desire to want to belong. What age did you feel the loneliness associated with your label of giftedness? It almost might go back to before my actual diagnosis. I remember feeling very uncomfortable even as early as kindergarten. I mentioned earlier that I started my education in a Catholic school as the product of a teenage single mother. So that didn't bode very well with the nuns and those in charge. So right off the bat, I was labeled differently. I was treated differently. My mother was treated differently at the PTA meetings. I remember feeling very sharp academically and always being one of the first kids to raise their hand or the first one to volunteer. But I wasn't called on. I was just looked at differently. So I was programmed to feel like, hey, you're smart and you have a lot of potential, but you're not worthy of being in this environment because I was different. I know that sounds a little heavy, especially for a kindergartner, but it's a feeling that I um, remember being very real. It's something that it was a realization that kind of presented itself when I did do psychedelics as a treatment for my depression. It brings up all these things from your past and you realize what's relevant and what you're carrying around with you. And for me, that was one of them beginning all the way back in kindergarten. At kindergarten, you're starting to feel some of that loneliness. You're starting to feel alienated from your peers. Maybe you don't belong. At what point does it go from, hey, it's just not a feeling. Maybe this is a clinical diagnosis. What age did you start using the D word, depression? I was about 12. There was also a, a big life event, a milestone that kind of correlated with all of this. My relationship with my father, with him and my mother never having been married, was volatile as a kid. They were young. We were on that kind of every other weekend parental cadence. And when I was 11, so right before I hit what we call the tween years now, my father more or less broke up with me. It sounds silly to say, but he had gotten married and started a family with his new wife. At 11 years old, he sat me down and said, I'm in a situation where I have to choose between my relationship with you and my relationship with my new wife and family. I choose the latter. And he said, you'll fall in love someday too and, and see that it makes you do crazy things. So I'm 11 when this conversation happens, and it just completely throws my world upside down. It took place actually on a family vacation, which was supposed to feel like the opposite. I remember emerging from that experience, feeling this sobering level of abandonment that I don't even think I had the sophistication to comprehend as an 11-year-old kid. There were some behavioral problems that surfaced in the year and a half, two years that followed. I was angry. I was reclusive. I had a bad attitude. My mom had a friend, a colleague of hers from work who also had experienced depression and said, I'm hearing what you're saying about your daughter. And I think that she might benefit from some professional treatment. Luckily, my mother was receptive to this, as was I. I began seeking early treatment for depression around 12 years old. At 12 years old, what type of treatment do you get? What does that look like? 
So you sit in a room and someone asks you all kinds of questions and makes you fill out all kinds of surveys. I don't know that the diagnosis is much different today. And we unpacked a little bit about why I may have been feeling the way that I was. I talked about the experience with my father. At that time, I wasn't really relating my academic success and, and being alienated from my peers because of that. Those connections weren't really being made at that point. I was just dealing with this feeling of abandonment. And so I began the road going down the road of uh, prescription medication. And it served me reasonably well throughout my teenage years. And I, I began to taper about my junior or senior year of college, feeling that prescription medication gave me the, the boost that I needed to level these chemicals enough where I could manage my life. And then I didn't need them anymore. I thought that I was cured and perfectly fine until later on in adulthood where it began to rear its head again. We can un unpack that in time, but that was my first go around with seeking treatment. There's one major question. I want to go back to it. So you're 11 years old mm -hmm. and your dad during a family vacation literally breaks up with you. Yeah. As daughter, that blows my mind. What, what's bouncing through your head when he says that? It seems so surreal. Yeah. So if I had to summarize it, I think the overarching reaction was it must be because I'm not good enough. And here I was, I mentioned I was a high achiever. I was so ingrained in the arts at such a young age. I was drawing and painting and playing music and writing music. I played guitar. I played piano. I thought I'm funny. I'm smart. I'm, I'm talented. I'm everything I think that I should be to get this guy to like me. He's my father. So it was this incredible feeling of rejection and not being good enough. And I think what made it even more difficult was I had cousins. So my father is one of uh, several brothers and sisters, and they all had kids who are around my same age. And what is it that makes them, they're allowed to belong why aren't I? So I had peers to compare myself to, which really, again, underscored that theme of alienation. Just to recap there. So here you are 11 years old. You're playing the guitar. You're playing the piano. You're painting. You're drawing. You're artsy, creative. You're doing great in school. But your dad breaks up with you because he has a girlfriend. He can't do both. Why A versus B? Why not C both? Like it, it blows someone's mind. And I can't imagine what that would do to someone who was 25 let alone 11. That's a lot on an 11-year-old's shoulders there. Wow. So yeah. you go seek treatment, the prescription meds and the therapy till maybe junior, senior year, you backed off. You thought it got you to where you needed to go. Take mm -hmm. us from there. When did you rediscover this depression thing is not cured? I finished up with the prescriptions right before going away to college. I moved from Northeastern Pennsylvania to Philadelphia for college. So I was away, but not too far away. And it was this wonderful feeling, of course, freedom, but also, hey, maybe this is somewhere I belong. I'm not at this school because of chance, because I happen to live in this neighborhood and I'm sitting next to these kids who happen to live in the neighborhood. I'm here because I chose to be here with people who have interests that are similar to mine. So I'm set up to, I'm ready to thrive in school. And oddly enough, around that time, my, my father and I had kept in touch intermittently. We would do the, the twice a year phone call, Christmas and my birthday, just to give him that peace of mind that I was okay and a relatively well-adjusted young adult. As I started going through my college experience, I thought, you know what? He doesn't deserve that, that peace of mind. And I'm ready to break away completely and then put a stake in the ground. I gave him one more chance to, hey, if you can't integrate me into your life, then I choose to cease contact, which is what we did. So it was this other milestone in my development and in my relationship with him that while it was very sad, it felt like something that I was able to put behind me because I finally had this confidence of feeling like I was in an environment where I belonged. I met the guy who's now my husband, my sophomore year of college. He was able to cultivate within me a sense of security, normalcy, love, and acceptance that really, frankly, filled a void for me. And it gave me the courage to move on from this stuff with my father, from my past, and begin to write my own future. I did really well in college. There was definitely still that edge of competition with my peers. So I continued to feel like I was mm, set apart from those around me. It was 
good and bad. My husband and I, he's my boyfriend at the time, finally gave me this, this confidence to write my own future and forge ahead with all of the wonderful, exciting things that you do as you begin to really gain your independence as an adult. I finished school, got a great internship. He finished school, got a great residency um, at a hospital that's actually local to Northeastern Pennsylvania, where our families were from. We settled here. We got married. We bought a house. We had a child. We had another child. And my career was accelerating. His career was accelerating. And it was just this wonderful buildup of all of the things that I thought I could ever possibly want. Success in terms of career and family. I couldn't understand for the life of me, why is it that I have everything I should, but I still feel so completely empty inside. It came to a head, I would say, after the birth of my daughter. She's my second child. And postpartum depression is something that is most common in people who have suffered from depression before. So this illness that I had really stopped identifying with all of a sudden was back. And it was back with a vengeance to the point where I couldn't get off the couch. I just sat and cried and cried. I knew that it was time to do something about it because I knew that there was no rational reason for me to feel the way I did, but I was stuck in this negative cycle, in this negative loop. So I found myself for the second time in my life seeking prescription medication again to deal with depression. After the birth of your second child, your daughter, you went into this spiral of postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. If it looked like your life was going really well. You found someone you love. You had a, you had a great husband. You had two great kids. You had a new house. You both had thriving careers. Everything looks like from the outside looking in, it's just going really well for you. If yep. someone would ask you while you were laying on the couch, why are you so depressed? What would your answer be? I would probably tell them that my life was completely devoid of meaning. And I think that part of that, it was around this time where I really started to revisit the feeling of giftedness. I mentioned earlier that I was diagnosed and I thought that it was just this passing milestone in my school-age career. But for the very first time as a depressed adult who felt like I was constantly searching for meaning around me, I thought this can't be, something is different with the way I'm wired. And I began to research giftedness in adults and find that this is this insatiable search for meaning is actually very common in gifted adults. It doesn't matter if everything seems to be going right. You find yourself questioning existence and humanity and life and death. And why am I here? And am I making a difference? And I just felt completely empty. Wow. After the birth of your daughter, you're on the couch, postpartum depression, devoid of meaning, feeling empty. How do you handle it from there? So I revisited the road of um, prescription drugs for depression, and they served me well for many years. There, there were times throughout my adult life where I would think to myself, oh, I'm so glad that I don't need that stuff anymore. I don't need the Lexapro. I don't need the Zoloft. I felt like I, I had won, like I had conquered it. I'm at this point where I'm so vulnerable with a newborn. My kids are 14 months apart, so I was in it. I had to be there for my children and I had to be a good spouse for my husband by taking care of our family. And I knew that I couldn't go on basically unable to function. So I was at peace with exploring prescription drugs. They kept me well and good for quite a long time. I would mess with my dosage a little bit here and there, up a little, down a little. I was at the point just before the pandemic where I was weaned off of my antidepressant drugs completely. I was exercising. My career was going well. My kids were getting older. They were a little bit easier. And again, I I felt like I had conquered them. Then came this pandemic that we have all been languishing in for the past two plus years. The prescription drugs that once made me feel okay not super, not perfect and great all the time, but just okay enough to function and be in control. As I tried to revisit them again for a third time to get myself out of this funk, lack of socialization, the ups and downs of my career, trying to support my team of 20 in a fully remote environment, all these pressures, all of a sudden the prescription drugs weren't working. I had become resistant to the treatment. And these drugs, of course, were stacked with things like 
talk therapy um, and all other sorts of self-care rituals. I tried to do everything right, yet I still felt like hell. And there was a weekend in particular, I was alone with the kids. My husband was away at a football game and I took the kids to five guys for a bite to eat. And I just put my head down and stared at the foil wrapper of my burger. And I just wept and thought, I can't move on. And I remember feeling, it's hard to even say, if this is what the rest of my life is going to feel like, like staring into a black hole then I don't want to live anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, I knew that I wouldn't act on any of those thoughts, but it was radical enough that I thought something needs to change and it needs to change quickly. And that is what led me to exploring psychedelics. So you're at five guys. You're having a, <laughs> a good cry at five guys. You're that person, <laughs> you're that person at five guys. They're just like, whoa, they're like, we're going we're gonna to sit two tables away. You're sitting there with your kids. You're just crying into your burger. You're having crazy thoughts. Something had to change and something had to change quickly. And you exhausted the traditional prescription Lexapro, Zoloft, Paxil. Mm -hmm. You exhausted that. That line of travel is good, done, complete. So what's your next move from there? What happens? So I had known a little bit about psychedelics as a treatment for depression because uh, my two brother-in-laws are in the cannabis industry. They were involved in Colorado very early. And I always had this finger on the pulse of the cutting edge of cannabis as it related to medicine. I remember my brother-in-law making jokes about his neighbor who had a mushroom farm and oh, all these guys out here are, are taking mushrooms. And no, I'm telling you, it's going to become a thing. It's So it had been on my radar for some time. I could probably even credit the, the data that runs through my social media algorithm because before I knew it, I was seeing ads on Instagram for Forbes articles about these remote psychedelic treatment clinics, mainly in New York, where you can sign up, talk with the doctor, they ship you some psychedelics in the mail, and you go on a trip via Zoom. So I started to explore all of these different avenues for taking psychedelics, either at home or in a, in a clinic in New York. I ultimately ended up finding a practitioner in Pennsylvania, about two hours from where I live, that had a much more hands-on approach to administering psychedelics. Some of the places I had explored in New York or found in Forbes were a little kind of funny, boutique-y, experiential, right? Oh, come to this place that looks like a day spa and go on a trip and change your life or let us ship you a pill in the mail that's going to fix you. Whereas the clinic that I found was a bit more, I would say medicinally, let's see. He was... He aired closer to the, the side of many things about traditional medicine that made me feel comfortable exploring this as an avenue. So for example, you come to my clinic, someone has to drive you, right? You come in, I'm going to hook you up to a pulse ox machine and a blood pressure cuff and a heart rate monitor. I'm going to dose your medicine very specifically according to your weight. I'm going to increase that dosage over a series of six infusion treatments, and you're going to be monitored and in the hands of professionals the entire time. So that is ultimately the avenue that I continue to explore and complete treatment with. Just a little background, just doing a little research on psychedelics. For the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with it, or just here's some really basic stuff. You can comment if I'm on the money or off. So psychedelics basically, just big picture, like they're plants and compounds that can, that can induce hallucinations to treat either depression, PTSD, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they could be anything from mushrooms to LSD to POT. And then basically what they think they do is they reset the brain's chemical levels, like dopamine, like the neurotransmitter levels, reset, and then potentially get the brain out of their stuck ways of thinking. And they're almost like a reset of the brain. Is that fair? Is that on the money? Or? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The psychedelic that I used for my treatment was a drug called ketamine, um, which is an anesthetic. You can have heart surgery under a high enough dosage of ketamine, but it also has a bad rap because it's sold as a street drug or a party drug. So I knew that if I was going to go down this road with psychedelics, I wanted to be able to be vulnerable to the process and 
I knew that I would only be able to access that level of vulnerability if I went about it in a very carefully measured, monitored environment versus finding some shrooms or a peyote ceremony somewhere in a remote town in Mexico. All that sounds really fun and glamorous, but I know that deep down I'm, I'm a mother of two. And yeah. this felt like, uh, for me, ketamine was certainly the most, it felt the safest. Sounds like a Netflix episode, the one you said earlier, the one <laughs> mushrooms in the desert in New Mexico. Right, so you find that professional that you like their line of thinking. I like the way they do this, their processes. At what point do you realize this is helping? So I think that there's a multi-step answer to this question. And, and I guess I'll preface by saying, had I exhausted every single pharmaceutical before I went down the road of psychedelics? Yes and no. I had taken my fair share, but I knew that in my current condition, if I called my, my GP, if I called my doctor, they'd say, you know, why don't we up your dose and maybe we could stack on a little bit of Wellbutrin and then call us in three weeks. And I knew that I didn't want to go down that road of stack upon stack upon stack of pharmaceutical drugs. You think or you hope when you're depressed and you call your doctor, you're like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I'm seeking help. And then you realize that so much of it is a crapshoot. And you're playing with your body chemistry with this cocktail of pharmaceuticals. And there's really no perfect science to dial in just what's going to work for you. The United States healthcare system, they don't know very well what to do with depressed people. Basically, they don't want you to kill yourself. In fact, when I called my OBGYN after the birth of my daughter, when I was suffering from postpartum, they said, if you feel like you're going to kill yourself, dial 911. Otherwise, we're going to go ahead and give you the number to Catholic Social Services. So our healthcare system doesn't know what to do. From the research that I had done on ketamine, Yes, the drug works on its own in a couple of different ways. It does affect the neurotransmitters in your brain, as you mentioned, and it creates new connections that can break that negative cycle. But it also creates these, for lack of a better term, these mystical experiences, right? You completely disassociate from your body, from the fact that you are a human being, and it gives you this incredible perspective that's unfathomable. Now, I had researched this and I kind of knew that was coming. And I thought, I don't want to just be a passenger to this experience. I want to utilize every single thing in my tool belt that I possibly can to get the most out of it. I also partnered with a talk therapist, someone who I had worked with on and off over the years. And I coupled each one of my ketamine trips with an integration session with my therapist. So what this means is, you talk about what comes up for you both during the trip and in the few days following. You extract patterns from that and you realize, oh my gosh, the reason why I feel worthless as an adult is because I felt worthless when I was 11 years old and my father broke up with me. There is no reason for me to continue to feel that way. So you can hack the way that your response system has been hardwired and move on from it. So that is what I did throughout my ketamine experience. I knew from treatment number one that it was going to work for me because as soon as I felt the very first sensation of psychedelics, I had this overwhelming feeling of, I don't know what it is, but it's going to be okay. It's this incredible sense of peace. That feeling continued to grow by the time I got to treatment number three, I felt like my life had been completely changed and I, I ultimately graduated after a series of six psychedelic infusions over the course of three weeks. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. So your first, to say, you call it trip, right? So you, you're on mm -hmm. ketamine, they hook you up. Is it like a crazy dream? Is it out-of-body experience? Describe a trip. Go ahead. Sure. So the overall trip experience takes about 45 minutes. If I had gone to some of these boutique ketamine clinics in New York that I had been researching, they deliver ketamine by what's called intermuscular injection. They shoot it into your muscles and you can almost think of it as being pushed into a pool and all of a sudden you're tripping and you don't know what to do. I had ketamine delivered intravenously. So that's more like being slowly lowered into a pool. So that feeling of euphoria, which all at once I think could be overwhelming and a little scary, came on gradually. 
And it increased with every consecutive trip as the dosage of my medication increased. So in the beginning, it was just very calming. It was this sense of it's going to be okay. It was like the overwhelming feeling of dread that I used to have as soon as I opened my eyes in the morning was gone. And I didn't know why. But now by the time I got to trip number two, trip number three, I was falling deeper and deeper into what they call disassociation. So you're laying down, you're hooked up to the IV, your eyes are closed, the room is dark. And it's almost like looking at a movie on the back of your eyelid. I found myself, of course, you're seeing shapes and colors. I had on great big headphones and an awesome playlist. If you look on Spotify, there are actually playlists designed for ketamine therapy and other psychedelics. Bob Dylan um, is Dylan in there. In, in oh, I'm sure he was. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, Pink Floyd, of course. So you're seeing shapes and forms and colors and they're, they're responding to the music that you're listening to. But now your mind is not used to being disassociated from reality. So my brain kept trying to see these forms and colors and relate them to things that I knew. I'm an interior designer by trade. So I kept trying to create rooms or create spaces. And I imagined traveling through different spaces, concert halls, museums. But the more you can try to detach, trying to create something from what you're seeing and experiencing, the deeper you can fall into a psychedelic trip. One thing that was common for me was I would see very small lights way in the distance. And I would try to follow these lights. As I would get closer to them, they would expand and contract and glow and change color and move and trail. And I didn't know exactly what they meant, but it felt like I should follow them. Now, a lot of this sounds very hippy-dippy. I completely understand. Did I ever wake up from a trip and felt like I had it all figured out? Yes and no. I would feel things like, I can't believe that I didn't want to live before. Now I realize that love is infinite. You can't put a cap on how much you can love and be loved. Beauty is something that's infinite. I can continue to seek beauty throughout the trajectory of my life. And it, it gave me this feeling that was worth living. But for me, the real value that came was after each one of these sessions in, I would say the 24 to 36 hours after a ketamine trip, when those neurotransmitters in your brain are fired up and they're finding new connections and new pathways, I would find myself having these quiet moments, usually at night before bed, where I would have these profound realizations about my behaviors and how past life experiences caused those behaviors. And that was really where the value came for me. I don't think you could put more value on the quote you just said a few minutes back. It gave you a feeling that life was worth living. Yeah. That's huge. That's pretty profound. How, ketamine, did you ever go anything besides ketamine? So from a psychedelic standpoint, I have not. I, admittedly, there were times when I thought that things like mushrooms were easier to access, like they are becoming in, in some other states. But I'm at peace with the fact that we're not there yet because I have had a an incredibly wonderful experience with psychedelics. And I don't want to ruin that yeah, sure. um, by dipping my toe in the water yeah. recreationally. I will say that I'm a medical cannabis patient as well, which has helped profoundly with anxiety. Now, I don't think that there's any way to really relate the feeling from cannabis to the feeling from psychedelics. They're very different, but what the cannabis does for me and actually what it did for me throughout the time I was going through ketamine treatment was it quieted my mind enough for me to focus on what was really important. So you ever get to the end of a busy work day and you're laying in bed and the wheels in your mind are turning so fast and you're thinking about all the things you have to do tomorrow. Cannabis helped me escape that mm -hmm. and made me realize there's nothing more important in this moment than how good it feels to pet my dog or drink a cup of coffee or pick up my guitar and play. So I was able to dial in to a level of mindfulness through cannabis that I, I couldn't escape otherwise because I was so riddled with anxiety. You use the cannabis, the medical cannabis, to help you focus on the present moment because our best life, no matter who you are, where you are, what age you are, is in the present moment. Because if you think about the past, 
and it's unhappy, you're depressed. If you think yes. about the future and you're uneasy about it, you're failing forward in the future, that's anxiety. So, but you think of right in the present moment and you're centered and use the cannabis to do that. That's calming, soothing. You enjoy that cup of coffee. You enjoy petting your dog. You're enjoying that sunset. That's great. How did you know you were done or are you done your psychedelic treatment? How do you know it's time to go again? Where are you with that now? Interestingly, the use of psychedelics is still so new that there is little research or mixed research on now what? I would read some things that said, oh, it, it worked for a patient and a month later they were back in the same situation and they had to either go for psychedelic infusions again or move on to a different form of treatment. There were also some kind of anecdotal stories, many that I learned from the doctor who treated me that was, oh, I saw my very first patient for psychedelics seven years ago and I have never heard from her again, except to say that she's doing great. And she has since graduated from college and does all these, has done all these wonderful things. So I will admit that while going through my treatment, I had these moments of really high euphoria, but I kept sobering them with this fear of what if this doesn't work? Or what if I don't feel this good forever? Or what if I have to go back? I have since made the decision to stop wormholing and worrying about what if. I knew that I was done on the sixth treatment because it felt, the trip itself felt like bookend, trip number six. Whereas trips number five and number four, even though they were beautiful and amazing, and I was seeing lights and colors and shapes that I normally couldn't fathom, there were moments of those trips that felt uncomfortable. I felt tension. I felt like my subconscious was traveling through stormy weather. And when I look back, yeah, it was traveling through stormy weather. All of these things then would come up that I had to heal from as a result. By the time I got to my sixth trip, the whole thing start to finish felt like a party. It felt like I was on vacation in my brain and it felt like a celebration. And I knew that I was better. That was about three months ago. And I expected my condition to decline over time. And it's common. My doctor said, Hey, you might call me in six months and say, doc, I need a tune up. At which point you'll come in for one treatment, just one, not six, just one. And you might be good then for a year. So it's a very real possibility that I will have to go back. But what I've been surprised by I think that the experience triggered this sort of, I feel like I have a similar neural plasticity as I did when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I'm painting in new ways. I'm a painter. I know we didn't really get into that, um, but I paint quite a lot. I picked up an instrument and played with a full band for the first time in about 15 years. And I feel that I am in this mental creative renaissance that's just continuing to grow and build. So oddly enough, I'm better now, three months later than I was immediately after my treatment concluded. How do you think your general practitioner would respond to say, traditional medicine took me to a certain path. Now the psychedelics actually were cured me. So the research on psychedelics is incredible. And I know that it is surprising and affecting many people in traditional medicine. Before I signed up for this treatment, I called a cousin of mine who is a pediatric anesthesiologist since ketamine is an anesthetic. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about using this for this. What have you heard? And he's at a large healthcare system in Philadelphia. And he said, we're not doing that here, but I got to tell you, my colleagues, it's on their radar. In fact, one of them even has a clinic on the side and he's doing this, right? So there are a lot of folks in traditional medicine who read the research and it's difficult to dispute that it's working. But I can tell you pretty confidently that if I went to my GP and shared this experience, I don't feel that it would be accepted. And I think the reason why is because healthcare is consolidating and consolidating. You no longer, or you very rarely go to your independent mom and pop doctor's office up the street. They are now part of a system. And when you work for a healthcare system, you abide by certain standards and norms as they look to standardize the level of care. And part of that is standardizing 
what drugs they use and for what. So I think that while a traditional doctor might believe the research and be excited by the evidence, with the way healthcare is in America today, they may be in a position where they have to turn the other way. What advice would you have for maybe someone out there struggling with depression or anxiety that maybe that have been on maybe the traditional path of the Zoloft, the Paxils, and just not working for them? But maybe they just feel they're, they need to do something else. What advice would you have for them? I would tell them not to be afraid of going down the road of psychedelics. There's a lot of things to be scared about. What is this going to feel like? I'm hooked up to machines. I'm unable to move. I'm trying to open my eyes, but I can't. I'm trying to speak, but I can't. There's all these things that kind of happen to you while you're undergoing treatment. And it's easy to read about that and easy to get scared. What am I going to see? What's going to come up for me? I would tell them not to be afraid and to trust that if you are vulnerable to what this medicine can do, it can heal you from somewhere so deeply, whereas your traditional prescription drugs are simply masking your symptoms. Now, the most important piece of advice, and I think that this is an area where, again, we're not there yet with ketamine in terms of what's that line between the medical world and the spiritual world. Ketamine is right in the middle because yes, it's medicine. However, it conjures this deeply spiritual experience that can change the trajectory of your life. You're not going to get that the integration of what comes up from that by just visiting a ketamine clinic alone. So I would highly encourage working with a licensed therapist separate from the ketamine treatment to really unpack and integrate what comes up for you during and after the trips, because that's stuff that you can take with you forever. Side effects. Like there's efficacy, there's a side effect. What did it feel like after each trip? What were your side effects afterwards? So I was very tired in part because it, it is an anesthetic. Oh, and by the way, anesthesia always makes me nauseous. So going into this, I was able to receive anti-nausea medicine in my IV with the ketamine, which is another great way about doing it intravenously. So I was sleepy physically, but I was also sleepy mentally. And from some of the reading that I did, and even from some of the things that my doctor had told me, they were like, hey, be kind to yourself, to your body and your mind after these treatments, because your brain is going to be making new, doing a lot of work that it's never done before or that it hasn't done in a long time. So I kept describing the experience to my husband as I would say, oh, I'm just cognitively exhausted. Sometimes I couldn't put my finger on why I was so tired. But other times I would be like, gosh, I did this trip. I went to my therapist and I realized that these half a dozen things from my childhood are still haunting me now as a 35-year-old professional adult with kids of my own. And it's time for me to let them go. That requires a lot of cognitive strength. So you just got to let yourself relax and spend some time doing things that you enjoy so that your brain can heal and rewire. Fascinating stuff. A couple more questions to be respectful of your time. So let's fast forward a little bit here. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? Ooh, that's a really great question. For as much as my knee-jerk reaction is to relate it to something with my career, I'm very lucky to have a platform through lecturing and white papers and webinars and publications. But after going through this experience with psychedelics, I am rediscovering pieces of my creative self that had been dormant for a very long time. I think that when you're nurturing yourself as a whole person by exploring things like passions and creative outlets, it just allows you to bring a better version of yourself to everything you do, whether it's parenting or being a good partner to your spouse or being, a, in my case, a good boss at work. One of those things that's helping fuel these other areas of my life with positivity is making music. I wrote music a lot when I was younger. I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm sure that it was the outlet to, to deal with a lot of the feelings that came up for me growing up in a non-traditional family, being abandoned by my father. That was an outlet that music is back in my life. I'm writing again and playing with others again. And yes, in a way to express and cope and deal with a lot of these things that have come up for me as a result of using psychedelics, but more so it just feels like a raw celebration of 
mindfulness feelings and creativity. It's a good exercise in being vulnerable enough to share your art with others, in this case, other musicians, because they can take a little blip of a song or a little couple of verses or lines and build upon your ideas and boost you up. And before you know it, you've got three or four songs and you want to record a demo. So that's what's in my future over the next couple of months. Uh, Good luck with that. Here you are now, you go from all the way from being labeled as gifted early on, feeling alienated from your peer group to your father breaks up with you at 11. Then you have this great family and you get married, you have postpartum depression, you go through your ketamine treatments. At this point, when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do now? I have to work out. I am one of those people who did not start to take exercise seriously or prioritize it until the pandemic. In fact, it was really the response to having nowhere to channel my anxiety. So I had never been on a stationary bike before in my life until I impulsively bought a Peloton from my iPhone on the couch one night. And now I am in a wonderfully committed two-year relationship with the Peloton family. I'll do anything from a 45-minute cycle to a 10-minute core exercise or a 10-minute weightlifting exercise. It makes me get out of my head and into my body. Um, And it's, there's, there's no turning back. I feel great. Yeah. That's great. Why do you think that 45 minute, it's just mental. If you said, Hey, we're going to do jujitsu or yoga for 45 minutes. I go, I'm in. You go, we're going to go for an hour, spur of the moment. I don't know if I have an hour, but you just take a few minutes off and go all in for 45 minutes. I'm like, I got 45 minutes. And you say hour. I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if I can fit that (laughs) in today, but that that 45 minute marker is the one that's like, I'm in. Yeah. That's really cool. So Peloton, you give them a thumbs up. Yeah. Big time. How about COVID-19 just brought that up. What's your biggest lesson professionally or or mental health-wise? What's the biggest lesson you learned through this whole crazy COVID-19 two years we've been going through? I knew that I had struggled with my own mental health for most of my life. It was not until the pandemic where I realized that so many of my colleagues, both the, the 20 employees who work for me or the other employees within my organization, all of a sudden mental health was so relevant for everyone at work. I really developed into a mental health advocate as a result. There are, I have a a master's in leadership psychology, and one of my favorite courses as part of my master's was all about well-being and leadership. There's these five principles of well-being. You've got career, social, financial, physical, and community. If your career well-being is off, even if it's only one of the five, it impacts the other four. If you're miserable at your job, you're going to complain about it to your friends when you're out socially. If you're miserable at your job, you're not going to make the time to work out and take care of your body. I take my position as a leader of people, especially during this unprecedented time where so many people are struggling with their mental health. I take my position as a leader very seriously. And I am very candid with my team about the importance of taking care of their minds, taking care of their bodies. I'll tell people, look, I need you to take one day off, off the books in the month of December, because we've all been going really hard and you need to recharge your batteries. And I'll do things like that regularly. And it creates this space where people not only feel cared for because of some perks, like an extra day off, but it suddenly creates this safe space where it's okay to say, you know what, my head's just not in the game today. I need to take some time. And that's exciting. That's a great leader there. Knowing your people and knowing the back off. Like it's not just charge, charge hard as you can. Sometimes it's, you got to step back, either call time out, take the day off, take the afternoon. You know, yeah. That, that's really good. That's awareness. And that's a lot of empathy there. That's fantastic. Great job there. And there's a few more questions just wrapping up. Everything you've learned through the process of just life, mental health, family, kids, career, what type of values do you try to pass on to your kids? Or would you like to pass on to your kids? I think that if I could instill one thing, it would be to remain curious. As a kid, curiosity comes so easily, right? It's their job to be curious and to explore and to make these connections. And you get older and that kind of goes away. You have to work 
to be curious. But if you can continue to prioritize it and not only be curious, but be vulnerable in doing so, try something new, take a ballroom dancing class, go to jujitsu, sign up for pottery as an adult with a bunch of college kids. These are things I've done, by the way. You can really... I just find it so invigorating. And by allowing yourself to approach new things with a curious mind, with a beginner's mind, you can bring things back into all of the other disciplines of your life where you are better and you're more empathetic and you're more mindful and you find these unexpected benefits and unexpected connections by just being open and being curious. And that curiosity, from my take, it's crushed out of people through the formalized schooling process, because you get something wrong, you have a B, you have a C. For trying something and failing, you get punished for that because you're not correct. You're wrong. You have to raise your hand before you speak. You can't step out of line. The people that make history rarely stand in line. (laughs) They rarely raise their hand. They they leave. They go out and they're different. And then that curiosity, when you do something and fail, you're not rewarded for it. You're penalized for it. So that kind of crushes out that curiosity thing. And getting back, we spoke maybe a half hour ago about going to school and it was really hard to get in schools. I saw a list of, of one of my kids are uh, looking at colleges. And I saw a list of the hardest schools to get into in the country, elite colleges. And also there's another list I found Googling the most depressed kids on campus. They're almost the same. Best business school, a great medical school. is also has the highest number of depressed people on campus. Like they give like the student surveys. Like you said, that giftedness gives such a weight for them of they have to succeed. That giftedness is a a blessing and a curse at the same time. What's your relationship to your dad right now? So when I was, right when I graduated college and I decided to cease contact with him, I knew that I would ultimately see him when his mother passed away, my grandma. And I had gone to therapy for years and years and years and talked through every scenario about what am I going to do when this happens and how am I going to be at peace with it? And not long before the pandemic, I found myself in that exact scenario. His mother passed, she's local. And my husband and I went to her services and I saw my father for the first time in many years. And you know what, Joe? I forgive him. It's really heavy to say that. I forgive him for a couple of reasons. Um, The primary one is forgiving my father helps me be at peace Mm -hmm. with the situation. Forgiveness isn't always about the other party. Forgiveness is so much about our own perception and our own ability to move on. You don't have to carry yeah. it around with you anymore. You, you get, you, you're like, it's off your shoulders. You just let it go. Yeah, absolutely. So you know what? He was surprisingly likable and we had a wonderful afternoon catching up. We spent more time together than I thought. And there was a little part of me that thought maybe this will kick off some new era of my relationship with him. And there really hasn't been any contact since. And, and I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Just two more questions. We started talking about when you were 10 years old around that dinner table with, with your grandparents and your aunts, if you could go back to that dinner table when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell the people around that table? I would just thank the hell out of them because I don't think you realize as a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a mentor, whatever, you're going through the day-to-day and you're just trying to get dinner on the table and get to work on time the next day and make sure everybody's clothes are washed and everybody's homework is done. And you have no idea that just your presence and being accepting and welcoming and just leading with a genuine heart and a lot of love, the lasting impact that has on a child. That's what they all did for me. That's great. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? So what's hilarious about this question is that I'm actually covered in <laughs> tattoos. I see that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I have loads and loads of tattoos. I've got a sleeve on one arm, a sleeve going on the other and all sorts of other treasures in different places. And I'll tell you that I have a hard time relating words to tattoos. I I mentioned earlier that I'm a very visual person. So I found that 
for me, it's not so much about a word or a phrase, but a symbol of strength. So a lot of the subject matter that I have, one is an eagle and it's somewhere very prominent on my body. You could probably see it when I go on a job interview and I don't care. But when I look at a symbol of strength, like an eagle, and I know that I went through a painful process to put it on myself permanently, it reminds me that I am tougher than I think I am and that I'm going to be okay. That is awesome, especially coming from Philly, uh, the symbol of an eagle. It's about <laughs> as good as a spot to any to end. Melissa Sprah, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your amazing story. I don't think I was as uncomfortable preparing for any of the 30 previous interviews than <laughs> this one, because this was a, an entire education for me going through this and the subject matter I just did not have familiarity or comfort with. And uh, thank you for walking through this and being so vulnerable and so open and honest and sharing your story. I think you helped a lot of people today. If people are looking for you and what you do online, where can they find you? So LinkedIn is probably the best place. Melissa and my last name Sprout, S-P-R-A-U. If you find me on there, you can see all, all sorts of fun things that I do professionally, but I, I like to put it out there that I am a, an advocate for mental health, especially in the workplace, and always open to a conversation about how to fill that bucket, whether for individuals or for other leaders um, looking to really take care of their teams. And if someone's looking for more information on psychedelics, or mental health, what website would you send them to? That's a good question. I would recommend really any of the medical journals or a good Google scholar search. It's tough because with so many media outlets, they skew you know, things one way or another. So I find myself, even whether it pertains to my career or to my personal life, go and find the research. It's a little dry, but if you can read something in a medical journal, you know that it's going to be unbiased. And so that's what I would recommend. Melissa Sproul, thank you for your time. Wish you nothing but success and great health. Best of luck to you and your family and your career. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.